Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. Thanks to all of you who are joining us after catching us at the Opening the Ancient World Conference. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Hello. Welcome. Um, and thank you, Eric, for your Patreon support. Late breaking. <laughs> support. Thank you. And listeners, if you want to support us with a few dollars a month or... Or if you subscribe at an annual rate, you get a sweet, sweet discount. You can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And you can help us reach a hundred. And when we do that, there's a, there's a secret special gift that's going to get sent out to all our patrons. And if you'd like yep. to support us in a non-monetary fashion, you can leave reviews and stars on any podcast platform and recommend us to anyone who will listen. Anyone at all. Or you can just hang with us and listen. That's that's cool with us, too. We love it. As for our regularly scheduled programming this week, Amber, will you tell me a story? I have a story for you, yes. So um, this week, I'm feeling better, everyone. Thank you. Um, no more sea cucumber? I sound, I, oh, gosh, no. Hopefully that's behind me. Um, but yeah, so hopefully I sound more like you're myself. definitely perkier yeah but also last last week's episode was like the first time that i was recording properly again and so i sounded better by default so yeah i can yeah. only imagine how great i sound right now oh um, a treat so, for the ears <laughs> <laughs> so this week i'm doing a bit of a variation on our back to school theme and i'm taking us back to my school days <laughs> So the good old bad days of learning about Mesopotamian history and archaeology of the Arabian Peninsula. So like, as I told Anna before we started recording, this will be probably the third time that I like actually know something, um, which is great. It's so great. I have so much power right now. Um, for the sake of accuracy, let us all imagine that I'm currently growing out my weird mullet and I'm subsisting on a diet primarily of Diet Coke and Luna bars. So Join me in the library, Carol. I'm currently squatting in. And let me spin you a tale. Ignore the multiple gross coffee mugs behind you. Uh, would you care for a cold garlic knot? I snuck them in from the dining hall. Okay, but I have acapella practice in half an hour. Is anyone still <laughs> listening to this? Why, why have we had this flashback? Okay, well... A recent discovery in what is today Saudi Arabia reminded me of one of my favorite historical weirdos. Um, so you and I talked about this, but do you care to share with our listeners? Sure. So about a month ago, a headline came across the Dirt Newswire from Live Science, where Owen Yaris, possibly Jairus, writes, quote, cuneiform inscription from last king of Babylon discovered in Saudi Arabia. And that article reads in part, quote, a 2,550-year-old inscription written in the name of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, has been discovered carved on basalt stone in northern Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Commission for Tourism and National Heritage recently announced. An engraving at the top of the inscription shows King Nabonidus holding a scepter alongside four other images that include a snake, a flower, and a depiction of the moon, the commission said in, the, in a statement, noting that these symbols likely have a religious meaning. These engravings are followed beneath by about 26 lines of cuneiform text that experts within the commission are currently deciphering. This is the longest cuneiform inscription ever found in Saudi Arabia said the commission in this statement, end quote. Well, that's cool. So the last king of Babylon visited Arabia. Is that is that what's going on here? Yeah, sure is. Um, and he didn't just uh, visit it. He exiled himself to it. Or did he? It's complicated. So we're going to get into it. But before we get to his basalt inscriptions in northern Arabia that are longer than any other inscriptions. <laughs> um, See above. <laughs> 
<laughs> see above and also see below because you're going to get to we're going to read oh, some of his inscriptions, but not that one. Oh. Um, let's rewind a little bit and talk about the state of Mesopotamian rule in the sixth century BCE. It's really fun so, for me, like hearing the excitement in your voice right now. Like, <laughs> is this how you feel when when we do hominins and stuff? Or you're just like, this could go anywhere. I yeah, I'm I'm always just like happy to be on the team when you talk to me about like human evolution. Yeah, this is one of the oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, this is great. This is great for me. Oh, uh, and I also like feel like secure knowing that I can ask you a question and there will be an answer, like because you know things. So not about this. I send that to you. I Yeah. So we've talked about Mesopotamian polities here and there. And uh, coincidentally, like actually coincidentally, as recently as last week in our library episode, um, I mentioned a couple of the highlights of Mesopotamian kingship. First, I mentioned Sargon the Great, Sargon of Akkad, who was in Hedwana's father. And um, and he was also a game changer in the region, as I mentioned. So he took it from the system of city states that maintained a tension among themselves that resulted in squabbles and one generally being a bit stronger at any time. So sort of a bunch of different city states hanging out, um, one of which was Sumer. Uh, to conquering and establishing the first empire known as the Akkadian Empire, uh, which was uh, based in Akkad or Agade, as it as it is the Sumerian name for it. Um, and that empire ran from the mouth of the Gulf north northwest up the Tigris River between the Arabian Desert on the southern side and the Zagros Mountains on the northern side. So it's sort of the Fertile Crescent. Like that's where it was. Um so after almost 200 years, the Akkadian Empire collapsed and the territory coalesced into two polities. <laughs> so did you see? Oh, there's a king named Dudu. <laughs> yes. So like, of the Akkadian kings, the penultimate one's name is Dudu. Yeah. And I realize that that <laughs> probably isn't funny in Akkadian. It's not, but well, it's, it's, it's also in Sumerian. I'm sorry, in Sumerian, so. but it's very funny for me, <laughs> especially since right next to it, you just have written, don't blame doo-doo. <laughs> it was a little joke for Anna. Thank you. <laughs> Still laughing. Um, so after almost 200 years, the Akkadian Empire collapsed and the territory coalesced into two kind of polities. Some people call them nations, but that, I uh, It's no. a tough term. Like nation, yeah. nations is kind of new. So the two polities is Assyria in the north and Babylonia in the south, with sort of the chief cities being Ashur in the north mm -hmm. and Babylon mm -hmm. in the south. So, in the south, the third dynasty of Ur gained power, and Mesopotamia as a whole chugged along for a millennium and a half of control of the region. So, I'm simplifying things in a major, major way here, um, but most of that time, power was centralized in the north, in Assyria, or in the south, in Babylonia. You've got your old kingdoms, your middle kingdoms, and your neo-periods for each, so you've got the old Assyrian kingdom, the old Babylonian, you know, all that. I get it. Um, and last week we mentioned the Neo-Assyrian Empire in Ashurbanipal, um, which I think is a great place to pick back up. So Ashurbanipal was the last of the great kings, as they're called. Um, so sort of the peak of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And he was a brutal guy. Um, we'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later on, but yeah. So you can read... All about this um, and more, um, if you if you want to, in, in uh, Mark Vandermeerop's History of the Ancient Near East. It's now in its third edition, hmm. um, but it's a really good, concise history. Um, there's also like lots of kings lists and stuff, and so you can just sort of, if you want a crash course in the ancient Near Eastern kingdoms, um, Vandermeerop's book is a really good one. Cool. So um, during his rule, so. Ashurbanipal, not Mark Bandamirup's rule. Um, there was a revolt in Babylonia, uh, planned in part by his brother, who had been appointed governor. Um, and that's something that happened not only, so you would have sort of like the king of Babylon, but he is kind of a vassal state. Like he is sort of subordinate to the king of Assyria because he was the king of Syria, king of the four corners, king of the world, all that. Uh, and also Babylon is the sort of home city of Marduk, the, the head of the pantheon. So there was sort Top of, God. it was a significant place. Yeah. Um, and so 
you would, you know, he named his brother the king of, of Babylon because it both is he's a subordinate role, but it's also a very important role. Um, and um, so he but he was kind of sick of it. Like he was sick of uh, the crackdowns on on Babylonia. And so um, he he had a, a revolt that was helped out quite a bit by the local sort of the indigenous community there in Babylonia. So um, Ashurbanipal died in 627, and for 15 years, the empire floundered as boycotts and rebellion simmered. You got people are saying, like, I'm not paying, tri- I'm not paying tribute anymore. And they're like, oh, no. And and also just like full on revolts. We did not Until think finally, this <laughs> And finally, in 612, a coalition of Babylonians, Chaldeans, Medes, Persians, Scythians, Cimmerians with the C, and Sagartians. So these are all people living kind of in Babylonia under Assyrian rule and also neighboring populations who wanted to see Assyria brought down. Um, they ended three-ish years of fighting by sacking Nineveh and burning it to the ground. That's when That'll the library got destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. So Assyria was dead, and from out of the smoke emerged the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Uh, this is the empire that brought us Nebuchadnezzar II, who successfully laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple, that of Solomon, and took the Jews into captivity in Babylon, um, which was sort of a normal tactic, uh, imperial tactic of ancient Near Eastern kingdoms, where um, you would displace populations. And like other empires do this too, where you kind of take people out of the terrain that they know and sort of the connections that they have to other people and you displace them. You put them somewhere else and they're easier to control if they don't have a sense of, they don't have a better sense of the land than you do. Right. Um, so he's the one that did all that. So you may have heard of him. And so um, Nebuchadnezzar II ruled for 43 years and um, he died at about 80 years old. Um, so three kings and six years later, Nabonidus takes over, which sounds stressful. Yes, it does. So, um, so um, enter Nabonidus. Let's take a break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back. And Amber, you were about to introduce me to Nabonidus, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four corners of the world, king of the universe, possessor of a healthy ego. Yeah, so that was his full formal title. Um, And he was the last of the lot. (laughs) So um, everything about this guy is interesting, um, all the way down to his origins. To start with, his name wasn't Nabonidus. Um, that's the Greek, like the Hellenized version that we get from Herodotus and others. Um, and it's always struck me as weird that we use, well, it doesn't strike me as weird. Uh, it always strikes me as unfortunate that we often use sort of Hellenized versions of names for yeah. some kings. And then for others, we use like their real names. Mm-hmm. So his actual Akkadian name was Nabu Naid. Okay. Um, which means like big ups to Nabu. So Nabu is praised. Right. Okay. Um, and um, 
And so he wasn't from Babylon or Babylonia at all. Uh, he was a Syrian or maybe Aramean, uh, but we think Assyrian, and born in Haran, which is a city in the present day nation of Turkey in Turkish Kurdistan. Does that strike you as odd, Anna? Yeah, it does. It's not often that you have a king with sort of unknown origin because kingship is usually passed down, usually through the the paternal line. So, yeah, yeah that's yeah, we've got, weird, a, we've got a newcomer. Like- Yes, this like northern guy. Um, yeah, and that is usually the case here. But Nabu Naid has no blood relationship to anyone else in the Chaldean dynasty. And the Chaldean dynasty is what we call um, that last uh, crop of the Neo-Babylonian kings. Okay. Um, so there's a possibility that he was married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar II, whose actual name was Nabu Kuduri Utsar. Uh, which means Nabu protect my heir. Um, and we, but we hear that from Herodotus. So, okay. uh, but other people have different, different reasons for how he might have come around. Um, so he wasn't a total rando. Um, he had some role or other in the court, as did his son. He was like maybe a mediator or like he, he had some kind of political role. Okay. Um, regardless, he makes no attempt to connect himself to the other kings of the dynasty, which is kind of weird. Um, so he came to power after an assassination plot was carried out by his own son, uh, Belshazzar, as we know him from other sources. His name was Belshar Utzer. Uh, Bell protect the king. And Bell is like a term used for. <laughs> That's Martin. ironic. Bell protect yeah. the king unless, unless I kill him. Sure. <laughs> Um, and so that plot resulted in Belshar Utzar naming his dad king, oh, which Bell is like a great this plan. King. This one. Well, he already had that name. So okay. I guess, yeah. yeah. So nominative determinism. So it's a really good plan if you think about it. Um, you can't be accused of a power grab if you name your father as king, not yourself. You're like, no, I'm give, I'm, I'm sort of giving it to the rightful king who happens to be my dad. But since your dad's getting up there in age, you can gain power soon enough and it would be all the more legitimate because you inherited yeah. it rather than just seizing it. Better optics. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, so unfortunately for Belshar Utzar and the longevity of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nabu Na'id had interests outside of the usual kingship gig. So from here on out, I'm going to be presenting kind of two different narratives. So um, a face value reading of his actions, so sort of like taking what he says at its word, um, which is kind of a traditional reading, <laughs> um, and, and let's say a more nuanced take. Um, and so this story um, exemplifies one of the things that I love so much about studying the ancient past um, and in the value of adding in multiple perspectives, um, because when you have more people looking at stuff and more people from different backgrounds and with different like sort of intellectual backgrounds coming at it, you can, you have people who will say like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like <laughs> think about this. Um, and so like, that's what I really love. So come with me, stay with me on this journey. Okay. Um, so some describe him as the first archeologist mm-hmm. um, and, and early Assyriologists painted him as a sort of kooky old collector who liked to dabble in history and look for Temenu, which are the foundations of old temples. Okay. Um, and, and like, he just like, couldn't be bothered with matters of governance, which like, I don't know, might've made him more relatable to those historians. <laughs> Uh, He's like but me. it doesn't hold up. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't really hold up with what we know. Okay. And well, like what else we see. Color me shocked. So in uh, Paula Lampelo's Bolu's uh, 1989 book, The Reign of Nabonidus, King of Babylon, 556 to 539 BC, he discusses the subject, pointing out that finding Temenu was important for the purposes of restoring temples, which is something that kings did like all the time out of reverence for the gods as like an act of, um, I don't know, like spiritual stewardship. Like that they have this responsibility to ensure that the gods are being properly worshipped. And one way that you can do this as a king is to be like, look, I I assigned all of these resources and labor to making sure that the temple is in tip top shape. Mm-hmm. And you have to find the Temenu because that is sort of um, the original dimensions of the of the temple are like, you know, the, the gods move the king to make it in a certain way. So you want to make sure it's it's accurate. So it's like restoration. Gotcha. That's something that Neo-Babylonian kings did 
like in particular, to legitimize their connection to the long, long line of kings before them. Um, it's just something you'd be like, look, I'm, I'm just like paying respect to the, to the people that I inherited this from, like, and it sort of ties them to this lineage, even if it's like completely so far removed from, you know, Sargon of Akkad. Um, however, as Beaulieu writes, he is the only Neo-Babylonian king who makes references to history in his inscriptions. Inscription 1 is a good example. It refers to no less than eight Assyrian and Babylonian rulers in four cases in relation to events connected with their reign, and in five cases for political or religious reasons. As seen earlier, most of these references are not incidental. They belong to historical narratives with a specific purpose. They attest not only to curiosity about the past, but also to true historical consciousness. Nabonidus sought to put his own accession to kingship into historical perspective, going back as far as Sennacherib, who had reigned more than a century and a half earlier. Another interesting example of Nabonidus's antiquarian interest is the discovery of the statue of Sargon in Sipar. He may have intended to connect himself with this most prestigious ruler of Mesopotamia's past by setting up a similar statue of himself in the help Ababar. In the Ababar. What's the Ababar? Is that a region? Uh, no, the Ababar is a specific temple. Ah, okay. According to the Royal Chronicle, Nabonidus restored the statue of Sargon because of his, quote, reverence for the gods and his respect for kingship, end quote. This statement is crucial as it provides a unique piece of evidence for assessing the nature of Nabonidus' antiquarian interest. His restoration of Sargon's statue was motivated not solely by religious factors, but also by a purely profane interest in the past, particularly in this case where it concerned the first great imperial period in Mesopotamian history. Nabonidus' interest in the Sargonic dynasty went even further. He restored the temple of Ishtar of Akkad in Agade, and excavations lasted for three years before the old Temenu was found. Since this Temenu was discovered in the seventh year of Nabonidus, one may conclude that the decision to restore this temple was made at the latest in the fourth year, and it is therefore very likely that the king was influenced in his decision by finding Sargon's statue. Even more interestingly, an excavation of the palace of Naram Sin in Agade was apparently undertaken at the same time as the following text suggests. So yeah, we won't read that. We're not going to read yeah. that text. But also just to, like, for clarity, Naram Sin was one of the other like like big, like heavy hitters of the Akkadian dynasty. Right. Okay. So what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think it makes sense in terms of doing this to establish his legitimacy. I think it's really interesting that he seems to have had an interest in the past for the past's sake. Just sort of, what happened? What's going on? But I don't have any more nuanced reading of it than that. So that's the thing that a seriologist, like, we're like, oh, well, he's just like interested in the past. Isn't that so interesting that he has? But it is also informed by um, a very practical reasoning where he's like, I'm going to be the most reverent. I'm going to be the most knowledgeable of the the kings that came before me because I like he's trying to pull it back together. And and this is and so he has to be the best at every possible facet of kingship. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like he is just like he he is like hitting it out of the park on being a king, um, mm -hmm. which like earlier historians read as a like, oh, he's just interested in understanding the past and learning. And like what that. But I, know, I maybe see. It's so simple. learning for the sake of um, to say that improving on it. Yeah, he's he's not just like learning about it to know about it. He's learning about it to to have you see that he's learning about it and he knows about it. And that he he's doing this out of, as I said, reverence for the gods and his respect for kingship. Okay, like so this is um, all very public facing. Yeah, like because everything that's in the royal chronicle. So this is everything that okay. is sort of for for consumption. So antiquarian dabbling aside, there's one salient fact about Nabu Naid that has perplexed generations of Assyriologists and admittedly probably perplexed the citizens of Babylonia a fair amount when it happened. Um, he packed up and moved to Tama, uh, which is in northwestern Arabia. Um, and it's about 500 miles away as the crow flies across the Arabian desert. Not a short um, trip. Not a short trip at all. And so Tama is in the Hejaz and the Hejaz is sort of a, um, a, like a sort of mountainous 
region that kind of runs north to south um, in what is today Saudi Arabia. They're on the Arabian uh, Peninsula. Is that what you described um, as your favorite region when we did the Arabia episode? No, okay. no, that would be um, Dhofar. Okay. Where it's just like super lush. Okay. But this um, is, this is mountainy. I've not, I've not been to this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> so no, um, he left, he left for Arabia in 552, um, year three of his reign. And he returned to Babylon about a decade later. Huh. Um, so while he was there, Tama was technically the capital of the Babylonian Empire, but during his self-exile, Nabu Nayid appointed Belshar Utzer as regent. His his son. Yes, no, his no, son. Belshazzar. Okay. Yeah, his son who was just like, yeah, give me that kingship. <laughs> uh, maybe. We don't know. Um, so why did he go to Tama in the first place? I hear you asking. I am asking that. Why? Well, don't worry, because I'm going to spend the rest of the episode talking about oh, it. Oh, great. Because this is really, it's really, really interesting. And I think it, 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 it's something that also, I don't know, tells us a little bit about Assyriology and tells us a little bit about like history and, and archaeology as two different things that maybe should talk more. <laughs> um, according to many, including Nabu Na'id himself, he went to Tama because he got religion. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that he was from Haran, which is, in, which is one of the two chief seats of worship for the moon god, Sin. Or Sin. It's funnier if you say Sin. So Sin, who is Nana in Sumerian. Okay. Um, the other one was at Or. And actually in Heduana held an important role in the Nana temple through her responsibility at the Inanna temple. Okay. Um, Hold on. Are Nana okay. and Inanna two different beings? Yes, okay. they are. So in Mesopotamian mythology, um, Nana is the father of Utu and, and Nana. So in Akkadian, that would be Sin is the father of Shamash uh -huh. and Ishtar. And Inanna is Ishtar. Yeah. So the moon god is, is seen as the father of the solar deity and the deity associated with the, with Venus okay. or the morning star. Yeah. So very important God. And so there is a there is like a, a an important aspect of of the mythology and sort of the kind of religio political constructs there that I'm not going to get into. Okay. But so so it's just since I mentioned it had last week, this is something that, that she did. So this was at or which is where she was. OK. Um, All right. So import, important God. Then, you yeah. Know. Yeah. So. Uh, Nabu Na'id's reference for Sin had deeper roots than just being from Haran. His mother, Adad Gupi, was a priestess in the Temple of Sin. The Temple Maybe. of Sin. Have... Yeah, I <laughs> wow. Uh, I know. So she might have just been a worshiper. Um, there's some debate about just how humble Nabu Na'id's origins were. Sure. Um, and, and so some people like to talk it up. Um, some people think that she was maybe a daughter of Ashurbanipal, but also like, mm -mm. I don't, I don't, I don't know what, where that comes from. Uh, but regardless of his mom's status, one thing is true. For devotees of sin, the lunar deity was the head of the pantheon and demanded top billing. Remember I mentioned Marduk was. Right the head of the pantheon. Okay. There. So, and that's, and that's definitely the case in Babylonia. Um, Marduk was the God of creation and some other things, but most importantly to Babylonians, Marduk was the patron deity of Babylon. When he gained power, um, Nabu Na'id tried to reconfigure the pantheon to position sin at the top, knocking Marduk down a peg. Um, this ruffled some feathers, um, whether because of like a genuine faith in these deities or perhaps it was an affront to the Babylonian way of doing things posed by this northern weirdo. Um, or maybe because the temples were very wealthy, very powerful institutions that were involved in political, economic, and social life in the cities. I can't say. Can't you though? I, <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Um, because something that we can't access in through cuneiform sources, um, for the most part, is like faith among the everyday person. Yeah. Um, but we do see a Nabu Na'id's official position on sin in the Haran inscriptions, which were established in Haran in conjunction with his plans to restore this, to restore the temple of sin there, the Ehohol. Inscription one, which we'll read, uh, was written in the first person from the voice of his mother, Adat Gopi. 
So um, Anna's now going to read to us from C.J. Gad's 1958 translation of the Haran inscriptions of Nabonidus, um, which I'll include a link to in the show notes if you'd like to read them in full. So uh, we're beginning, <laughs> I, feel like the, I feel like I'm at church, um, I'm at, beginning at column one, line 39, if you'd like to follow along. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what's my motivation? Sin. <laughs> Sin, king of the gods, looked upon me and Nabunaid, my only son, the issue of my womb to the kingship he called and the kingship of Sumer and Akkad from the border of Egypt on the upper sea, even to the lower sea, all the lands he entrusted hither to his hands. My two hands I lifted up, and to Sin, king of the gods, reverently with imploration, I prayed thus, Nabunaid, my son, offspring of my womb, beloved of his mother, thou hast called him to the kingship, thou hast pronounced his name, at the command of thy great godhead, may the great gods go at his two sides, may they make his enemies to fall. Forget not, but make good el hul and the finishing of its foundation." When in my dream his two hands had been laid on, Sin, king of the gods, spoke to me thus, With thee I will put into the hands of Nabunaid thy son the return of the gods and the habitation of Haran. He shall build el hul shall perfect its structure and Haran more than it was before, he shall perfect and restore it to its place. The hand of Sin, Ningal, Nusku, and Sadarnana he shall clasp and cause them to enter el hul the word of Sin, king of the gods, which he spoke to me, I honored, and I myself saw it fulfilled. Yeah. So, as we learned there, Nabunayad had been appointed king by none other than Sin himself. And if the establishment in Babylon wasn't going to let him worship his properly, he was just going to find somewhere more open-minded instead. Um, so he went to Arabia. Um and so Northwest Arabia at the time had quite a bit of religious diversity, um, but most groups in the Arabian Peninsula at this time were polytheistic. Um, were they all about the moon? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is something that I had never really thought about. Um, and so I like did some digging and oddly enough, I couldn't find a, like a good answer. Actually, I think maybe I did find a good answer. And that answer is nah. Um, <laughs> nah, dude. So, <laughs> so um, this is something because I always remembered that um, when talking about the Arabs, which again, Arabs, if I've not mentioned it before, Arabs here is not a monolithic term. Okay. There are lots of different tribes and groups different and they flavors. just all live okay. in Arabia and therefore, well, let's not say flavors when it comes to humans. <laughs> that makes you sound creepy. Uh, do not eat humans. Well, they... <laughs> Uh, but they all lived in Arabia, and so they are Arabs. Um, and um, so I looked into this. Okay. And there's there's a probably moon deity, we think is a moon deity, lunar deity, um, referred to in a Neo-Assyrian text, actually a few of them. Um, and this comes from the time that Sennacherib, um, one of the Assyrian, one of the great kings mm -hmm. of Assyria, met up with the Kedar coalition. And so the Kedar... Um, there was like a, it's kind of a federation or a coalition and they were out, they were trying to get conquering. Uh, this, this is when like they come to Jerusalem and stuff. Okay. Uh, so when they're heading out towards the Mediterranean, they, they meet up with like a whole bunch of Arab tribes who are in a federation and they talk about this, this um, God Ruda, who was part of a triad of chief deities, along with Atar Shemain, who is the, the morning star, so Venus, and Nuha, a solar deity. So Robert Hoyland says in his Arabia and the Arabs, from the Bronze Age to the coming of Islam, quote, the god Ruda was very popular in the north, but ignored in the south. Hmm. So Ruda was worshipped, um, we know from multiple sources, multiple written sources from the first millennium, um, that Ruda was worshipped in northwestern Arabia, which is where Tama is. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a direct analog to sin in Arabia until later, possibly because Nabu Nabunayad introduced it. Also, Ruda is always mentioned along with other gods, like at minimum, Atashemain and Nuha. So... It's not really the supreme deity that Nabu Naid thought of sin as, um, which is something that never comes up in anything that you see about Nabonidus going to 
to Tama huh. uh, because they're just like, oh, he went to where the, the moon god is worshipped. And the one thing that I could find is that there is like a like an early 20th century theory that maybe Allah was like had origins as a lunar deity. But oh, that's not interesting. That's not accurate. Okay. And also um, what. I don't know if it I don't know if it has the same roots as or if it's just coincident that there is like this old like Islamophobic trope that is sort of uh, in like old chick tracks like Jack chick tracks like yeah, the evangelical, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah like proselytizing documents Islam like Muslims like worship the moon because uh, because it makes it seem like, sort of more transgressive and exotic. And yeah, it makes it yeah it makes it seem like more primitive mm-hmm. and like weird um, and so. I'm not saying that the, that sort of that this that these are all connected, but that's that's what it is. And so, sure, there is a lunar deity, but it's not like the king of the gods the way that Nabunaid thinks of sin. Okay, which I find really fascinating that this was just kind of a priori for like yeah the whole time. Interesting. Um, What's going so on there? Chew on that. Okay, maybe read Robert Hoyland's book, um, and let's take another quick break. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and T Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at slash shop. That's slash shop, and click on the link. We're back. Get in, losers. We're going to the desert to worship the moon god. Y'all saying mean girls? <laughs> oh, no. That might be too old a reference. So um, this was a compelling reason for a seriologist like Gad um, for, for Nabunai to have gone to Arabia. Who And uh, Gad wrote about the Haran inscriptions saying, Ahem. It remains to consider, in the light of this new evidence, the often discussed but still open question, why did Nabonidus elect to pass what is now seen to be considerably the greater part of his reign absent from his capital in a roving life among remote deserts and improvised dwellings? To this, the new... Rude. Oh, Pup thinks so too. To this, the new inscription, H2, gives, upon the face of it, a clear answer. No, I bet it doesn't. (laughs) Nothing's ever no. Nothing's ever clear in this field. The king withdrew before a mutiny of his subjects dwelling in the great cities of Babylonia, led by their priests. This broke out in their refusal to obey his command to assist in the rebuilding of the temple at Haran, but did not amount to a total rejection of his rule. So you can stay king, but we don't like this plan. Rather, it was he, as the words plainly declare, who separated himself with indignation from a people so disobedient, so sinful, or not sinful enough, hey, ah, hey, sinless, sinless, <laughs> and so sorely afflicted by the god with manifest plagues as a punishment. It was ten years before he could bring himself to mingle with them again. <laughs> He stormed off in a huff. How long before the lieges came to a better frame of mind is not clear, but by the end of those years, they were willing to bear their part in the king's cherished plan. Against the natural protest that mere resentment can hardly account by itself for an absence so prolonged, involving a semi-abdication of royal power, must be summoned the failure of modern historians to divine any convincing reason at all. The quarrel between the king and his subjects was embittered. There is ample evidence of this from both sides. It is unfortunate, though perhaps intentional, that the chronology of the events recorded in H2, the the inscription, right? Yeah, this is Haran inscription 2. Okay. Is vague for neither the year in which the revolt occurred, nor that in which the Babylonians were ready to take back their king and cooperate in his projects are specified. Both, indeed, are covered by half a dozen lines. 
if, despite all this, there is still felt a necessity to look for more solid-seeming motives, the new inscription is not entirely without some other hints. First, concerning the king's health, which, as a supposed reason, cannot be taken very seriously, there is the new revelation, column 1, line 21, (laughs) of plague being prevalent at Babylon when the withdrawal took place. Yet obviously this would be at most a very temporary constraint. For the other attempted explanation of the quest for trading advantages, there could be adduced in support the reference already used in another. That's I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't read that right. One could say he didn't write that right. So. <sighs> there could be adduced in support of the reference already used in another connection to the plenty and wealth and abundance column three lines 14 and 15 enjoyed by the colonists whom the king planted in his arabian possessions but neither of these is more than incidental and certainly in the purpose of nabonidus so far as he was willing to reveal it they played no part at all not at all anna did that i don't that didn't answer any of my questions he did it because he needed to go worship sin because his he said it right there anna yeah nabonidus said it Uh uh-huh like Y'all need sin. I'm leaving. (laughs) Um, So Gad wrote this in 1958. So this was sort of the publication of the Haran texts. Um, Mm -hmm. And since then, there have been new sources to consider, as well as archaeological evidence and new, less Arabia shamey perspectives brought to the subject. As if like, you know, being like deserted places and like improvised, like, okay, cool. So um, if you're... If you're interested in learning more about all of this and what Belshar Utzer was up to in the meantime, um, check out Bolio's book. Um, it's linked in the show notes. If we zoom out, we're doing a little bit more zooming here, Anna. Yeah. We've been doing this for 18 months. Get used to zooming. Uh. Um, <laughs> if we zoom out a bit to consider more fully the dynamic between Mesopotamian kings and Arabia in the first millennium BCE, a different narrative starts to come together. So this is summarized very tidily in Peter McGee's book, The Archaeology of Prehistoric Arabia, in the chapter Expansion and Engagement, Arabia in the Ancient Near East. Shout out to Peter McGee. (laughs) He frames it by saying, quote, The shifting and ultimately unsuccessful tactics of these Near Eastern states highlight a key theme of this book which you should read. The inhabitants of Arabia were organized in a fashion that was fundamentally different from that in Near Eastern states, and interaction between the two was contoured by this asymmetry in economic and political organization. So they're just, they're very different. They do things differently. Um, and, and so McGee lays out the trajectory of foreign policy towards Arabia by Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian kings as following four phases. So phase one, contact and intervention. Uh, so this begins with Shalmaneser III, who um, this is when they, this is around the time that they actually, they meet the Federation of, of Kedar. And they're just like, oh, wow, you've got all these dromedaries and you've got all these spices and like, give me, give me some of that. So they're mm-hmm. just trying to get a taste. Like that's what they're, that's what they're trying to get. Uh, phase two, engagement and exploitation and war. Um, and so this is where you have Tiglath-Pileser III and that that um, relief that's at the British Museum that I cried at, that has Shamsi, the Queen of the Arabs on it, um, and Sargon II. So this is when there are, um, they, they do military engagement because they're trying to conquer them. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't go great, which brings us to phase three, which McGee describes as shock and awe, um, which is apt because this is the period where during Ashurbanipal's reign he just goes like berserk kills um, everyone no no it's a they um there are like really really violent reliefs like this is the only time that the only instance that i'm aware of that that depicts um sexual violence during wartime oh um and uh, the way that they talk about uh, the way they talk about them is that they're just sort of like forcing, like reducing them to like have to like drink their own urine and eat their children, and just like these like horrible like just this wow. they Yikes. they sort of because um, I have argued in like research that I've done that because like they're frustrated because they were trying to conquer them they couldn't conquer them they're like Ashurbanipal is the king of the world king of like all humans. I guess they're not human 
if he can't conquer them. Like it's just a way to dehumanize them because they exist outside his control. Mm -hmm. Um, And then phase four, colonization. So this all becomes much more interesting when we consider exactly where Nabunayad went during his 10-year Arabian campaign. Uh, You remember, as Gad said, he was just popping around among deserted places and improvised dwellings. Camping. So he, yeah, basically he was camping. So he claims that he left due to the impiety of his subjects. And in inscription 13 of the Haran texts, he proclaims, A kingly ahem. And as for me, I removed myself out of my city, Babylon, and I proceeded on the way to Tema, Dadanu, Padaku, Hibra, Yadihu, and as far as Yatribu. During 10 years, I went back and forth between them and did not enter my city, Babylon. Yeah. So um, are any of these places familiar to you, Anna? No. It's okay if they aren't. Okay. So so there's Tema. We're kind I mean, of aware of Tema. That's, that's where he had yeah, his, his... That's all his, I got. Improvised capital. Okay. Um, Daranu is Dedan, which is uh, now Al-Ula, which there's... Um, there are excavations happening there now, um, and they're very exciting. Um, so it was a it was a major place. Um, and then you might be familiar with um, Yatribu, which is Yathrib. Um, Yathrib is is now it was sort of in modernity a little place called Medina. Oh, yeah, yep. So so each of these each of these cities, even if you've not heard of them, it's okay. Um, they were oasis cities that played an important role in the political and economic life of Northwest Arabia, which was a great place to be if you were into trade. <laughs> and which really stumbled into that. Um, so these were important places, like important points along overland trade routes. Because remember, they've got dromedaries; they're able to do overland trade in a way that people without dromedaries can't. And and so they they get to operate outside of the sort of traditional maritime trade routes where you come into shore and you have to pay a tax and then you go and so you can get around that by just walking across it. Um, so this is part of the reason why Arabia had been the target of Assyrian campaigns in previous centuries. Um, and some of these cities in particular. So Gad was convinced that Nabunayad's Arabian tour was an act of religious dedication. But isn't it curious that he happened to spend time moving among these trade centers in the region and called them out by name in his inscription? Hmm. Was he perhaps telling on himself here? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting, right? Elsewhere... At Selah, which is in uh, Jordan now, uh, there's a relatively recently rediscovered Nabonidus inscription up on the side of a cliff, visible in pictures in an ASOR blog post included in the show notes, in which Rocio de Riva describes it as thus. On the eastern slope of the site, southeast of the main stairway leading to the summit and about 100 meters from the ground, there is a carved relief framed by a niche. The relief depicts a standing male human figure facing right. Three symbols are displayed in front of the figure, a moon, a solar disk, and a star. The figure holds a long staff in his right hand, while the left hand is lifted to the mouth in the well-known Mesopotamian gesture of prayer, and he wears a long... (laughs) And he wears a long robe and a conic crown or cap, the characteristic attire of the Babylonian monarch. Coneheads. Fragments of a cuneiform inscription can be seen to the right of the figure and below the three symbols. The figure has been identified with Babylonian king Nabonidus because the relief bears resemblances to other representations of this king on stela and because the inscription clearly refers to him. Okay, that helps. So, thank you. If Nabunayad and his entourage traveled through Selah, which this inscription seems to make it seem like he did, uh, he probably this probably means he traveled up the Tigris and then swung south to approach Tama from the north. You know, he went through his like through the you know the Fertile Crescent. Um, mm-hmm. So the route could have taken about a thousand miles, um, which is a very very so long. I mean, I calculated this by like Google Maps, so like. Give or take, but still, yeah, a thousand yeah. miles, which is a very, very long way to go if it's the Iron Age, and also it's this terrain and climate, and also you're ducking out of the capital of the empire you're running. But 
if you're trying to get a taste of that sweet, sweet Overland trade and previous attempts to get tribute, conquer and war crime Arabia didn't pay off, this seems much more reasonable. So he's, he's um, scouting. Yeah, he's 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 getting out there and he's he's setting up like a colony. Like he's he's trying to ex- exploit the trade there. Um, so it's interesting that he didn't delegate that. It is interesting, <laughs> but kings go on military campaigns. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he's going on an economic campaign, which but it's a religious campaign. Remember, he told us. No, it's totally he told us religious. It was religious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's all about us. sin. Yep. He told us. Nothing so, but sin. That's what he said. Speaking of delegating, it's like you read ahead, Anna. Um, I didn't. Which I, which I don't think you did. I did a lot of. I'm just a lot of nonsense below here. Just eager um, so to learn. One more piece of evidence I want to pull into this conversation about whether Nabu Naid's religious fervor might have been cover for a colonial project. This is fascinating. Um, isn't this fun? This is like, it's sort of like corporate espionage, but not really. Like corporate colonialism. Oh, which yeah. is all colonialism, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oops. You get it. So um, in 2000, Hani Hayajna of Yarmouk University in Jordan presented a paper called First Evidence of Nabonidus in the Ancient North Arabian Inscriptions from the Region of Tama. Uh, cool. So in that paper, Hayajna um, outlined inscriptions that were written in Tamanitic and Aramaic, so two sort of Northwest Semitic languages and say things like, <laughs> I'm just going to go with the translation. Yeah. Instead you don't have to read like, this consonant soup that you had left for me right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, Meridun, the servant of Nabonidus, the king of Babylon came with something um, that translates say, as ex- army leader. General. Rab Saris is Rab-Saris. probably what that is. Yeah. Okay. Is that, and that's a person or that's the name of the position? Um, it's a position. It's a title. Okay. In the attack slash invasion or in the emigration mm, for inspection or, yeah. f- slash supervision behind the bear desert. So I came to inspect the desert with my general. Yeah. So I don't know. Epigraphy is bonkers. Um, huge respect to epigraphy. It just makes me feel like my face is about to melt off. Um, but there yeah, also I just, is a little... I just like dissociated real quick when I looked at that. <laughs> so there also is a petrograph of a little dude on a camel, which Aww. was fun. So what this is saying is um, I, Murden, Murden, so M-R-D-N is the transliteration. So it's it's a it's a name. Um, Servant of Nabonidus, King of Babylon, came with the Rabsaris, who's like a chief officer Uh um and came so he came to to this place um to do something along with a chief officer on behalf of nabonidus so that's sort Uh of what we can take away from this yeah what do you do Um, in the desert with a military leader well here's another less difficult one okay i am endis servant of nabonidus the king of babylon yeah so these inscriptions which might be better described as graffiti they refer to and are written by, because they're written in the first person, by people who are not local to the area and who have non-Arabic names, but who can speak and also write in and carve in uh, the lo- local language and came along with Nabu Nayad. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Other written evidence from the period suggests that it was typical for um, for immigrants to give their first generation Babylonian children Akkadian names. And Hayanje points to one example from the reign of Nabonidus, where a father and son are identify have non-Arab names, but they are identifiable as such by use of a nispa. And um, so a nispa is the adjective. Um, used in names to describe the person's place of origin, tribal affiliation, or ancestry, which typically begins and uh, begins with the article al. So, mm-hmm. like al Baghdadi, al Takridi, like so, you know, right. that could be your last name. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily from there, but it's the construction of a name. So it's yeah. called a nispa. Okay. And so these people had a nispa and a non Arab name. And it's like, well, okay. So that's just something that that people did uh, when they moved to a new location. Like when they moved somewhere new and they had children, they would give their children local names. 
um, which is you know something you see among some first generation Americans Definitely. whose parents give them sort of an American name. This appearance of Arabs who came with Nabonidus in the Tama region brings us back to McGee's fourth stage of Mesopotamian involvement with the area. He writes, quote, stage four, colonize. In other words, instead of sitting in Tama and worshiping the moon god, as some argue was Nabonidus' purpose in traveling to Arabia, it is probable that he was there to engage with the North Arabian community with a view to controlling the trade that remained so elusive to previous Mesopotamian rulers who had engaged in the area. Because he brought, he brought people who knew. Like he, he brought people who knew the language, that knew the area, that probably if they knew the language, he brought fixers. might also know, know the customs. Yeah. You bring people who will get people to work with you. So it was, it was a subtler approach than previous kings. Hmm. Um, so it's not, it doesn't seem like, you know, Merdinand up above there didn't <laughs> say like we came to worship sin. He said, like, we, we, I came out here with uh, an army official of, of like high rank to check it out, investigate yeah. it. Like, so he was to doing something that was, yeah, like he was not doing like religious observation. No, just observation. So, yeah. So eventually, Nabu Naid came back to Babylon where things weren't going great. <laughs> so. Um, it seems that Belshar Utzer wasn't much of a charmer and had alienated much of the political establishment through his actions as well as his family's heritage. You may be familiar. I don't know. You may not be. Others may be familiar with Belshar Utzer or Belshazzar uh, from the book of Daniel um, in the Old Testament. And so the book of Daniel is uh, an apocalyptic book. Um, mm-hmm. And it the, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in it. But Nebuchadnezzar is it's actually describing Nabonidus. Um, and so they talk about how he, like Nab- the king, like had a dream where he was, it was like a tree or something. And it was like in the, in the wilderness or something. And he was like, Oh, get Daniel. He's going to tell me my dream. And Daniel was like, Oh, you are the tree and you will be mad. You will be in the wilderness for seven years and you will be mad. And then you'll figure out that God is God and you'll pray to him and you'll be fine. And he's like, Oh, cool. But, I bring this up because there's also um, a very sort of famous passage in the book of Daniel about Belshazzar's feast. So this is the one where Belshazzar and his boys are all um, partying and they're drinking out of like Jewish cultic vessels mm-hmm. um, and just being like super disrespectful. And then a hand appears, like an invisible hand appears and writes on the wall. Would you be super and- impressed if I know what the inscription said? What did the inscription say? I believe it said Mene Mene Tekel Ufarsin. What's that mean? You have been judged and found wanting. Oh, cool. Well, I don't remember that part because when I, I remember in Sunday school, we had a little printout. We were looking, we were learning about it and I was reading it and my nose itched because it was like, you know, allergy season. And so I scratched my nose and I went back to reading it. And then there was blood on the paper. Because I had like slit my nose open with my own fingernail. Jeez. <laughs> and I, to this day, I have a scar on my nose. Um, did you think it was a portent? I did. Because I was like a superstitious kid. And they were just like, oh, you're bleeding. And I'm just like, what? And um, so that's why I didn't get to that part. About the Alrighty. <laughs> So um, some sources point to a famine happening in Babylonia at the time, which Nabunayad said was because sin was mad because nobody was worshiping him right. And others said it's because Marduk was mad because of all the sin business. Um, but religious conflicts aside, he had a much bigger problem when he came back. Cyrus the Great was gaining steam to the east and the as the Achaemenid Empire was growing more powerful. Uh, And so in 539, not long later, uh, the Persian army entered Babylonia and declared it a colony of Persia. How it happens depends on who you ask. Both the Babylonian Chronicle and the Cyrus Cylinder describe Babylon as being taken, quote, without battle. Um, Whereas the Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon say that there was a siege. Um, The 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 book of Daniel notes that the king was killed, but... It could be that Belshar Utzer was the king that was killed because mm. it appears that Nabu Naid surrendered. <laughs> he was like, nope, I'm good, and was deported. All right. So he just was, you know, just like old dude kicking it. 
Um, and so the Cyrus Cylinder positions the Achaemenid king as appointed by Marduk to come back and restore normalcy to the religious order of things, um, which is like almost definitely propaganda. I mean, not that I'd say otherwise Marduk had appointed him, but like he, he found an angle. He had a good angle to come in and be like, no, I am, I'm the rightful king here. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, no, like Marduk sent me and, uh, you know, according to the Cyrus Cylinder, everyone was like, oh, thank God specifically Marduk. But that's my story. That's the the end of Nabonidus, Nabunayid, and who has been, you know, people think was just this like quirky guy who was just like a religious zealot and um, just like into, you know, being an antiquarian. But actually, actually, he, he was a super like a, savvy businessman. Yeah, very savvy operator and like knew how to play the game of kingship. So um, isn't it cool to learn that behind a headline about finding a Nabonidus inscription in Saudi Arabia, like there's a 2,500 year old story of spin and statecraft and yet again, a seriologist like buying the propaganda. (laughs) Missing the point. Yeah. Um, As a little bit of a postscript. I, I just wanted to double check and see if I was correct. So I, I went to the Wikipedia entry for uh, Belshazzar's feast. King Belshazzar holds a great feast for a thousand of his lords and commands that the temple vessels from Jerusalem be brought in so that they can drink from them. Again, rude. But as the Babylonians drink, a hand appears and writes on the wall. Belshazzar calls for his magicians and diviners to interpret the writing, but they are unable even to read them. Um, and so the queen says, oh, you should send for Daniel. He's wise. So Daniel's brought in and he reminds Belshazzar that his father was uh, granted kingship by God. And when he became ar- arrogant, God threw him down until he learned humility. And so mm-hmm. um, Daniel interpreted the words written on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin, good job me, and interprets them for the king. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. And ufarsin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And so that very night, Belshazzar was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. I don't know. Oh, I think they get some stuff out of order anyway. Yeah. There. I mean, it I was mean, written like several hundred years later. So yeah, no, no shots at the author of the book of Daniel. No, um, no. Yeah. So really fascinating to me because, you know, I came to, I came to this entire discipline more or less out of like learning the old Testament. And so then for it to like come back around. No, and that's be, so like, interesting. Wait. So yeah. actually and it so, turns out he wanted business route. He wanted a trade route and he wanted to conquer by controlling resources where military might had failed. Yeah. That going in and kind of making friends and establishing like a diplomatic relationship. Moving, shaking, kissing babies. Kind of had a cover for it. Yeah. I'm just going to go, um, go to the desert real quick. Yeah. And worship the moon God, which Mm -hmm. like which like also the like coming back to this, I can't believe I'd never thought about that before. I like never like thought to look into and like nobody else really picks it up because there's so many more kind of obvious things to like pick apart with this story. But like nobody really comes out and says like the moon god, like like there was a lunar deity, but he was worshipped along with a bunch of others. So it doesn't make sense. And so when you've got people who only study one corner of the world and you're like, we went to the moon god. They do them. That's what they do in Arabia. It's like, have you asked anyone? (laughs) No, of course, because historians and archaeologists don't talk to each other. Perhaps they should. It's my little story that I'm sharing. That was a great story. Thank you. Thanks. I really liked it. Yeah. Um, Well, um, I got to pack up because I got to get to a student government meeting. And the grad student who's Carol I'm squatting uh, just came in. So I got to go. <laughs> well, I'll see you in the dining hall later. Make sure you sure eat. Will. <laughs> ah, speaking of Luna bars, you know who loved Luna bars? Sin? Nevonidas. Oh. Well, we'll be back next week with more back to school stories. Yeah, we sure will. But until then, you can find us. On social media. Yeah. Uh, on Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. 
Yeah. And you can find all of that as well as links to dirt shirts and other merch and <laughs> our modular syllabus for educators and um, more info on uh, sponsoring an episode of your own or uh, joining uh, joining the 80, my goodness, people that support us on Patreon. 80 whole people. Yeah. You can find all of that over on our website, thedirtpod.com. Until next week, may Nabu protect you. I got to go to the desert. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You can also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.